first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. We looked over time, though, and looked at what fraction of kids went on to earn more than their parents for kids born in the 70s and the 80s and so on. You just see a really dramatic fading of the American dream, such that for kids who are entering the labor market today, it's basically a 50-50 shot now as to whether you're going to do better than your parents. Hello, welcome to Ezra Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is a bit of return to roots. It's a much wonkier episode, um, and I loved it. Uh, my guest today is Raj Chetty, uh, who is an economist at Harvard, the head of the Opportunity Insights Project. Uh, Tyler Cowen, who the economist at George Mason University, the uh, author of Marginal Revolution, past guest on the show, he's described uh, Chetty as the most influential economist in the world today. Chetty has received a MacArthur Genius Grant. He got the John Bates Clark Medal, which is the, the most important prize for an economist under, I think it's 40. Um, his colleagues say that winning a Nobel Prize is a when, not an if with him. And, and the thing that he has brought to the discipline is he, he has figured out how to use unbelievably massive data sets, um, a lot of them coming out of the IRS, unbelievably massive data sets to create much more fine-grained both information and statistics, but also quasi-experimental evidence and now literal experiments, particularly to try to understand how opportunity works and doesn't work in America. And a lot of his findings here have been truly transforming the profession. Uh, There's a great profile of him in Vox recently by Dylan Matthews talking about how he's transforming uh, economics uh, teaching at Harvard. That's a great piece to read. There's another great profile of him in The Atlantic. The work he's doing is really, really important. It's really interesting. And so we tried to take a big picture look at it here. Um, We start with a a new study he's done about seeing if a pretty modest intervention will help people get housing subsidies move to an area with more economic opportunity, which has been a a, a long time issue in, in housing policy, and then go from there to, to what he's learned in very big picture ways about opportunity in America. This is one of those conversations that has a pretty empirically sound insight like every minute. So it's dense in that way, but there's a huge amount to take from it. Um, and there's a lot. <laughs> it's one of those ones where I'm sitting there like, that's an article, that's an article, that's an article. Um, I have 50 ideas and probably not enough time to do them. Um, anyway, my email is always EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever. Again, EzraKleinShowAtVox.com. Here is Raj Chetty. Raj Chetty, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ezra. So let's start with the Creating Moves to Opportunity Project, because it's a pretty exciting project. Tell me a bit about the experiment and what it found. Sure. So Creating Moves to Opportunity is a study that we've just released. It's a study that we've run in Seattle and King County. And the basic idea of the project stems from earlier work we've done showing that the neighborhood in which kids grow up 
has a really profound effect on kids' life chances, on their chances of upward mobility, for example. And so the, the starting point for this project is recognizing that many low-income families in America live in neighborhoods that historically have had very low rates of upward mobility. They tend to be high-poverty neighborhoods, relatively high rates of crime and so forth, the types of places where kids don't always have the best chances of succeeding. And essentially, we came to the data asking, are people living in those sorts of neighborhoods because they have other reasons for wanting to live there, because they maybe have family who live close by or it's near their job or so forth? Or are there barriers that are making it hard for low-income families to move to higher opportunity neighborhoods, barriers that might be things like a lack of information, a lack of support in the housing search process, or maybe landlords in higher opportunity neighborhoods don't want to rent housing to them. And and if I can interject, some of the some of the place conversation has been before this experiment is that it's probably the former because you give people these rental subsidies and a lot of them end up in these high poverty, low mobility neighborhoods. That's exactly right. So what you see is lots of families in the U.S. receive rental subsidies from the government. There are about 2.3 million families in the U.S. that receive housing vouchers worth something like $1,500 a month in terms of rent in the Seattle area. And exactly as you noted, Ezra, you find somewhat puzzlingly from an economist perspective, most people take that money and still end up renting an apartment in a pretty high poverty, low opportunity area. And so that's led some to think, you know, maybe that's just a preference that folks have for good reason that they, these neighborhoods are more convenient or they have other features that, that people prefer. And so coming back to creating moves to opportunity, we set about to basically ask whether the segregation that we see in American cities of that form, is it in fact driven by preferences or is it maybe driven by barriers, things like a lack of access to housing in higher opportunity places because landlords are reluctant to rent to voucher holders or because of uh, just you know a lack of assistance in the search process where you might not know where to look or how to go find housing in these neighborhoods. And so we ran a randomized trial where we took about 500 families who were applying for housing vouchers through the standard housing voucher program in Seattle and King County. And for half of those families, we gave them additional services, services in the form of search assistance. So this is a counselor who spends time with you and helps you find units that might work for your family in high opportunity areas, uh, helps contact landlords in order to identify suitable units, and also some financial assistance averaging about $1,000 a family that can be used to a security deposit or, or other bills you might have to pay and so forth. And we basically set about to ask, if we give you this small set of services to knock down some of these barriers that might exist, does that end up really changing where families choose to live? And what we found was a remarkable change in terms of where families ended up choosing to, to move. Uh, in the control group, the families that did not receive these services, only something like 18% of families moved to high opportunity neighborhoods. In contrast, in the treatment group, that number jumps to 55 or 60%. So the majority of families are moving to these more mixed income, higher opportunity areas, really a sea change in terms of residential patterns. I really found this striking. So we're talking here about roughly a 40 percentage point change in not a small decision, but one of the biggest decisions people make where to live, like where their family will be, where they will be in relationship to work, where they will be in relationship to schools. 
based on what sounds to me like a pretty modest intervention in the search process. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, to be quite honest, we weren't expecting effects anywhere so large. These are some of the largest effects I've ever seen in social science. I was stunned by them. And you're absolutely right to note that this is not a very big intervention in the grand scheme of things. One way I like to benchmark that is relative to the cost of the housing vouchers we're already providing, which, as I noted, are about $1,500 a month, typically for seven or eight years. That's the duration of time the, the average family typically uses these vouchers. The cost of this intervention is about $2,500 a family. So it's about a 1.5% increase in the cost of the program. It's really a small expense relative to the overall amount of money we're already spending on these vouchers. And that ends up having a huge effect in terms of where families end up living. So I've read I've read the paper, and we can talk about the the statistics and the studies. But I'm curious because you're the person these folks are ultimately reporting to in, in the experiment, I believe. What did they find in the texture of this program that surprised them or surprised you? What What did they hear from people who used it? What What did it reveal to them running this uh, experiment about the obstructions people actually face? Like when you go into people's lives, what did you learn about? the lives and the obstructions to mobility in in conducting this. Yeah. So I had the privilege of talking with some of the families in Seattle and were more broadly interviewing a number of families in Seattle who made these moves precisely to, to get a sense of that question. What are the barriers you face in moving to these areas and what in the program helped you make the move? And what we learned is it's not the kind of traditional factors that economists at least would focus on, like the costs of moving to a different place or getting information. Lots of families had the sense that these would be better neighborhoods for their kids. And we got the sense that just giving them some additional money to move to those areas wouldn't necessarily make a difference. What really seemed more important were a couple of things uh, that when you dig into it seems central in the search process and I think many of us just take for granted. So one was having the psychological support of someone sort of in your court as your advocate to say, yes, you can do this. You know, it might seem daunting to try to rent an apartment in this very different neighborhood with landlords you aren't familiar with and so forth. But I will help you every step of the way. I'll give you confidence. I'll help you fill out the application forms if something comes up or somebody's asking a question about your credit history or why something happened in the past. We can work together to try to fix that or explain why things are different now from how they were in the past. So one was just, I think, the sheer psychological element, the provision of services and support. Another very important aspect is the landlord-facing side of this intervention, where I think, again, many of us take for granted that if we want to rent a particular unit, we can walk in the door, fill out the forms, and we're going to have a shot at getting that apartment. In this case, many of the tenants we spoke with said, you know, I submitted 30 applications to different apartments and every single one was denied. And for each of them, I had to pay application fees. And I just ended up getting discouraged and settled for a unit, you know, in one of these higher poverty areas where that I'm more familiar with. Here, what we've done in this program is worked directly with landlords to try to pre-screen and identify a set of landlords who want to rent their apartments to voucher holders. And we've done things like give them a damage mitigation fund. If anything goes wrong in uh, in the lease, we have an insurance fund so that you can uh, get coverage for that. We also try to explain the benefits of the program, bring them tenants who we think will work well for, for their particular units. And that, I think, greatly eased the search process for families. So 
the broad sense I got, Ezra, is it's not so much about sort of a standardized government program where we just distribute information through a brochure or increase the size of payments, but rather digging into the details of what was going wrong in the search process and really trying to address the specific circumstances a family faced. So this experiment is built on, a, at this point, a huge body of work that, that, that you've done alongside colleagues uh, looking at barriers to social mobility in America. And to, to start like digging into that, I want to go into the part of it that this particular experiment taps most directly, which is integration. There is an argument, and it's related to what you were just talking about with landlords, that either poor families don't want to be in more economically integrated neighborhoods or that it won't help them that much because in the sort of dreaded terminology, they just won't be a great fit, um, which might mean that you know, people don't want to associate with them, that they don't get services, that, you know, they're, they're, they're better off in a place where they have more social connections and more social capital and, you know, more are, are more b- built into the culture. Um, you've done now a lot of work on economic integration. Uh, how would you describe the effects on people's futures of being in a more or less integrated neighborhood? Yeah, so I think the work we've done over the past several years using big data to study economic mobility and integration quite definitively rejects both of those hypotheses that you mentioned. So first, I think there's very clear evidence that moving to a more integrated area is in fact extremely beneficial for low-income families, both in terms of their kids' long-term outcomes. So in particular, we find both using randomized experiments and quasi-experimental analyses where we analyze millions of families that move across neighborhoods, that the earlier a child moves to a higher upward mobility area, typically an area with more mixed income families, a more integrated area, as you noted, the earlier a child makes such a move, the bigger the gains they get in the long run. The more they earn as adults, the more likely they are to go to college, the less likely they are to have a teenage birth, less likely they are to have incarcerated. So the benefits, I think, are extremely clear. We have a series of studies on this. A number of other social scientists have a series of recent studies on this in the US and other countries. I think there's a consensus in the field that living in a more integrated area is clearly a positive thing for low-income families. Now, coming to the second point, is it that low-income families don't want to live in these more integrated neighborhoods despite those benefits because of other factors? They might feel happier in other neighborhoods, they might have more friends, they might be closer to jobs. That's where the creating moves to opportunity experiment shows that that is not the case either. When you provide families the right supports, they are much more likely to move to these high opportunity areas. And importantly, when we survey these families after the move, we find that they're much more likely to report being very satisfied with their new neighborhood compared to families that didn't receive those services. So that is the families that got the chance to move to these higher opportunity neighborhoods. They're twice as likely to say that they're very happy with their neighborhood than the families that didn't get those services in the experiment. Uh, To just take a slight detour here. So I'm living in in the Bay Area now, and this is a place with a lot of opportunity on some level in the sense that there are a lot of jobs and um, uh, a lot of social services and, and quite a lot of social capital here. But the zoning has created among a, a zoning among other factors has created an extraordinarily difficult path to living here, mm-hmm. and that seems to me, from what your evidence and research shows, to be a much more unjust outcome than it than I expect a lot of the folks here with Bernie Sanders stickers on their car recognize. That if you're denying people access to these neighborhoods, you're really denying them access to an engine of economic mobility that is profound. 
That's exactly right, Ezra. I mean, and I'm glad you brought that up, having lived in the Bay Area myself for several years. I think what that example illustrates is that what I've been describing about the results of this housing voucher experiment, I actually think the lessons are much more general than what applies to that particular policy. We spent $20 billion a year on housing vouchers, you know, and that's a lot of money. And I think improving that program would go a long way to, to helping things. But beyond that, thinking about housing more generally, zoning issues, the design of other affordable housing policies, what these results show you is that the way we set those policies up, I think, has profound effects on both the level of integration and then downstream the level of social mobility and inequality. And in particular, when we prevent dense development in high upward mobility areas, we're basically denying many kids a shot at the American dream. And so I think we need to weigh the trade-offs. You know, we might prefer to zone things in certain in more restrictive ways for other reasons. But we should weigh those benefits against the benefits of giving more kids access to the American dream in places like the Bay Area. You've done such granular work on which neighborhoods in the country provide opportunity and, and provide opportunity outsized to what you'd expect given their demographics and income composition. I'm curious if in that research you've developed a view on politically what kinds of places overperform here. Do you, is it more blue or more red? Is it yeah. more northern or more southern? Yeah. Are there things you see in terms of the the political cultures that are creating these, or is it more randomly distributed than that? Yeah, so let me say a couple things on that. So first, um, when you look at a national level, imagine zooming out before we get to specific neighborhoods within cities and just look regionally. You tend to find that the highest levels of upward mobility are in the Great Plains, but also on some some parts of the coast and the in parts of California, parts of the Northeast, you have much lower levels of upward mobility in much of the Southeast on average. Now, at a broad level, if you were to just take that data and say, how does that correlate with, say, Democrat or Republican vote shares, you actually find essentially a zero correlation. And if you think through some examples, you can see why that is. So if you take uh, the Great Plains, for example, typically lean more right, those are places with very high levels of upward mobility. But then if you take other places that lean right, like parts of Texas, for example, you also you, you find much lower levels of upward mobility. So on net, there's not a clear pattern in terms of linkage with, uh, with political factors. Furthermore, if you then zoom into local areas, what you find is that a lot of the variation in upward mobility is not coming from differences across broad regions, although you see it there. It's actually coming from neighborhoods that are just a few miles apart from each other within the same city. So if you take the Bay Area again, there are parts of the Bay Area, like in the peninsula, Redwood City, for example, is a place that is relatively affordable compared to the, the heart of Silicon Valley, is a place with quite high rates of upward mobility. But just uh, you know, a few miles down the road in East Palo Alto, you find much, much lower levels of upward mobility. And so you see this extremely local variation in all cities across America, again, in a way that doesn't obviously line up with political factors. And that, I think, relates to the fact that the roots of these differences in mobility are much more complex than a simple, you know, does it break down on, along the lines of certain government programs or government investments? So, so I want to get into the, the non-political roots of mobility, but, but actually to ask one big question about that. 
I think if you were somebody who just cared about mobility in the abstract, you might say, well, you know, the important thing is I begin working towards getting the policies that will foster mobility. So maybe if you lean left, that'll be universal health care and universal pre-K and so on. Or if you lean right, it'll be low taxes and, um, you know, corporate incentives. You can, you can come up with different packages. But the fact that there's an almost zero correlation, all else being equal, is one of the lessons of your research that I should downweight my like the 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 emphasis I give political decision making and policy outcomes in mobility is it is all this political fighting just mattering less in terms of mobility than people would think so i I actually I mean, I don't take that view because I think when we look at specific policies like the affordable housing policies we talk about or in a different domain education policies, we see very clear effects of policy changes on long-term outcomes and rates of upward mobility. I think what's going on is more that, there are various factors at play that sort of wash out or don't go in a systematic direction on aggregate. So there are some places that seem to be getting things right more in the dimension of creating integrated neighborhoods or have uh, you know better schools. There are other places with higher levels of social capital or connectedness that seems like another factor that affects mobility. And it's that on net, it's not that there's one policy platform that people have found that systematically leads to higher levels of mobility. I just think there are lots of different policies out there and we need to do a better job. I view this partly as the job of social scientists like myself of really figuring out rigorously what works and what doesn't so that we can expand those policies systematically. Wait, I want to draw this out because it's interesting to me. So you're saying that it isn't the the idea here is not that policy matters less than you think. But that the package of policies that have been incorporated into um, party agendas. So, you know, maybe on the left, it's higher taxes, it's more regulation, it's more social services, it's often more zoning and so on, more environmental regulation. And on the right, it's lower taxes, deregulation, cutting social services, and, you know, it's, it's, and, and goes on from there. That some basket of these work and some basket of these uh, push against mobility. And it's just not well correlated which group they're in. So you have Republicans and Democrats actually literally just both have some good ideas and have some bad ideas. And on net, neither one of them has managed to build a platform that is way better than the other for mobility. I think that's part of it. I also think we need to remember that there are lots of differences across places that exist even prior to the implementation of these policies that affect mobility. So if you take, for example, Democrats having more of these types of policies in more urban areas which tend to have higher levels of concentrated poverty to begin with, then you're going to see offsetting factors like that, you know, where there are racial differences that we think matter for mobility. There are uh, differences in the structure of cities. Cities versus rural areas tend to have very different levels of mobility. So it's not like we're working in sort of a controlled vacuum and then have an experiment where one place gets the democratic package of policies and another place gets the Republican package of policies. Those policies are responding to the conditions that are on the ground. And so it makes it difficult to piece apart the causal effect of the policy packages from whatever else is going on in terms of a different demographic mix, et cetera. So my, again, my read is on net. You can't read too much into how these things correlate with broad policy platforms. You have to really dig into the specifics of each policy in order to understand how policies impact upward mobility. So your team recently published a paper that compared 133 different policies, which was an impressive number. Um, in terms of their return on investment to society, which is here defined as uh, like the, the 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 return to society divided by the cost to the government. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you want to run through some of the big picture takeaways from that like massive meta-analysis? Yeah. So this was an impre impressive study conducted by my colleagues Nathan Hendren and uh, Ben Sprunkheiser at Harvard. And what they did is basically take a set of estimates that previous researchers had constructed on the impacts of a broad range of policies, ranging from healthcare for kids to tax cuts for adults to investments in education and so forth and so on. And for each of these policies, you can construct sort of a bang for the buck measure. So for every dollar I spend uh, from the government's perspective, how much do I end up improving people's incomes? Or if you're looking at health outcomes, try to translate that into a dollar value and think about the net benefits to the, to the recipients. And the main punchline that they arrived at is quite intuitive, I think, but useful to demonstrate directly in the data, which is programs that invest in kids, that is programs targeted at developing human capital, at education, at improving development, tend to have very high rates of return. In fact, sometimes infinite rates of return in the sense that they pay for themselves. So if we invest a dollar in certain types of programs like helping families move to better neighborhoods or certain types of early education programs, we actually find that those programs do not cost the government anything on net. In fact, they pay the government back because the higher earnings that kids end up uh, achieving in later in their lives, they end up contributing more tax revenue such that they more than offset the costs of the program. So these interventions- yeah. Could I just add one thing there or ask one thing? That implies to me if the mechanism by which these things pay for themselves is a spillover tax revenue, that the actual benefit to the lives of the people being affected is much, much, much larger because tax revenue is going to be only a fraction of actual income generation to say nothing of staying out of jail or having a job you like better or um, not getting pregnant when you're a teenager and so on. That's exactly right. I mean, think of tax rates as being what, like something like 15 or 20 percent for low-income families of, of total income. So your total income impact would be five times as large as the impact on on tax revenue, not to, not to mention all the other benefits that you described. So yes, some of these early programs, like we were talking about moving to a, to a higher opportunity neighborhood, these things can have quite substantial impacts, hundreds of thousands of dollars of higher income uh, over your lifetime. And so, you know, what, what I was going to say, coming back to, to their paper, is you see not for every early childhood program, but for lots of programs that target kids. And I should emphasize, it's not just programs that target the youngest kids, but also programs that target older kids, kids in their teenage years or certain types of college access programs. Uh, a lot of these things have these incredibly high rates of return or pay for themselves. And so the mechanism there is, it's, I think of the kind of the adage that, um, you know, you teach a person to fish and that has a bigger payoff than giving a person a fish, right? So if, if these programs that invest in human capital uh, development, they end up paying uh, for themselves, but then programs targeted purely at redistribution at adults, um, they don't have that property. So if I cut tax rates for low-income families or have something like the earned income tax credit, that doesn't have this feature that it ends up paying for itself. Now, to emphasize, that doesn't mean that those are bad policies. It could be that we want to, for example, help families with low incomes as adults or to take, I think, a more extreme example that really makes this point well, take a program like disability insurance. That's not going to be a program that pays for itself, but that was never the goal of disability insurance to begin with. It's to provide support for people who really uh, need help. And so the, the lesson of this analysis is 
these programs that particularly invest in kids, we should look at them differently. We shouldn't look at them as costing society. Many of them, if designed well, could actually be in all of our interests. They could save taxpayers money while increasing mobility and reducing inequality. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can imagine government programs like this having two functions. One is a care function and one is an investment function. Mm -hmm. And the the idea is not that there's a bright line. Sometimes you're you are doing something both because you care about the people and it's an investment in them, like a lot of these things for kids. But I always want to be careful with these kinds of analyses because, to use a, a slightly different example than your disability one, there's no doubt that providing end-of-life care in Medicare does not provide some large social uh, return. Right in terms of actual money coming back into the government. Like, that's not how end-of-life care works. People right. then don't get up and um, and and offer a lot more in tax <laughs> revenue. You do that because you're a decent society. And, like, that's a that's a good – that is, like, that is a more than good enough reason. Um, but it does seem to me the implication of this research is that we are way under-invested in children. I mean, they're just – there's almost nothing that you would imagine on that list ranging from um, universal pre-K – to uh, universal lead abatement programs, which seem to me to have a very, very high long-term rate of return, to paid leave for mothers, um, just guaranteed that we do in a systematic way. So it does seem to me that in our political economy, the fact that children cannot vote, um, but seniors do vote, just does create an imbalance towards, it is a good thing the concerns of seniors are heard. But um, but what we could what we could be doing in terms of investing in a better society tomorrow uh, by investing in children does seem to get downweighted given the the narrow bandwidth of our political system. I totally agree with that, Ezra. I mean, let me add a few additional points to that. So you know, one way I look at it is on the issue of redistribution. Your example of end of life care is great. Uh, you know, having a caring society, as you say, I think. People naturally have different weights on that. Some people think that inequality, if you just think about income inequality broadly, some people think that's a big concern and we should try to share the rewards of economic growth more equally. Other people have different views on that, that you know, if you earned a lot of money and ended up doing well, you should get to keep that. And I think you can reasonably have a debate about that. I think what, what much of our work shows is, however, there are you know, a lot of programs, as you pointed out, where there really shouldn't be a debate. These are programs that both pay for themselves, they generate great returns, and they end up reducing inequality in the process. They basically create greater equality of opportunity, and those tend to be programs targeted at kids. And I think it makes a lot of sense to, you know, given that it's in everyone's interest to invest in those sorts of programs, to, to push more for that. Now, that being said, I would caution that our work and other people's work also shows that it's not that every single program targeted at kids uh, ends up having such great benefits, right? I think the details really matter. And let's come back to the housing voucher example as a good illustration of that. We're spending $45 billion a year on affordable housing. My view is that that expenditure actually at present is concentrating poverty in higher poverty neighborhoods and reducing intergenerational mobility, reducing upward mobility across generations. And so, you know, what we need to do is take those well-intentioned programs and design them properly, thinking about the right set of evidence to, to make them more effective. In this case, through the tweaks we implemented in the Creating Moves to Opportunity program, help more families move to higher opportunity areas. Similarly, in the context of other education programs, there are big investments we might make, but if we're channeling kids to colleges that aren't actually helping kids climb the income ladder, that may not be worth doing at all. We, I think we need to think hard about the details of these policies to really make them effective. 
I think right set of evidence is an interesting um, thing to bring in here. So, so what you guys do in that study is you look at only very high, very empirically sound experiments. And so one, for instance, that you look at that gets a lot of attention in the early childhood space is a Perry preschool experiment, which was this very high touch, very high quality, um, very uh, integrated early preschool intervention. And something you hear in the downstream debate from that is that, yes, the Perry Preschool experiment worked great. If you could give everybody access to the Perry Preschool um, services, that would be wonderful. But you can't. That, 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 that It's not that the study is wrong. It's that it doesn't scale. And so I'm curious how you think about the, the trade-off between some of the research that ends up being the strongest here is that somebody did a study that was really well-conducted and really well-funded, which is part of why it was well-conducted. And because it was so well-conducted and well-funded, done by this great team, it was a really well-done intervention in a way that will not necessarily be true um, once it scales up and after it's gone through the political system. Um, so how, how reliable are these research experiments to take big-picture societal-level conclusions from? Yeah, excellent question. And I, I think that's fundamental in thinking about how we address problems on scale. So I see it less as an issue of reliability. So I think conventionally people think, oh, is what we're learning that, you know, in this one experiment, the results didn't generalize to other settings. That means that study wasn't reliable. That's not the way I look at it. The way I look at it is what we're increasingly learning is that the way you implement things really matters. The details really matter. It's not just about the dollars you allocate to a program, but about who was implementing the program. If you think about education, who are the teachers in the classroom? Who's actually providing the service? And how motivated are they? And how into the program are they? And do they are they really invested in, in seeing success? And so I think one of the challenges we need to think about as we expand these policies is not the conventional debate about how many dollars do we allocate to bucket X or bucket Y, but rather how do we maintain fidelity to the original goals of the program as we achieve scale. Now, for some of the things we've been talking about, like neighborhood effects, we have small-scale experiments where families were given vouchers to move to better neighborhoods, and we see significant improvements in long-term outcomes. We also have very large-scale evidence from big data, quasi-experimental approaches, where we're looking at millions of families that move across places and find very similar patterns. So again, I don't think it's that a given study's results don't generalize. I think the key is to figure out how we maintain quality as we scale. I'll be back with my guest, Raj Chetty, right after a quick break. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. One thing we haven't done really yet is talk through the, the big picture in mobility. So in terms of what you found, how would you tell the story of American mobility over the past 50 or 60 years? Yeah. So, you know, America, of course, has been perceived as a land of opportunity for a long time. My own parents came here as immigrants searching for opportunity like, like so many others. And what we found is, I think, dishearteningly, 
America is no longer as much of a land of opportunity as it once was. So for kids born in the middle of the last century in the 40s and 50s, virtually all of those kids went on to earn more than their parents did. It's a simple way of thinking about the American dream, right? So lots of things involved in the American dream. I think one cornerstone of it is the idea that this is a country where through hard work, any kid should be able to go on to have a higher standard of living than their parents. And that was basically true for kids born in the middle of the last century. Something like 90% of kids born at that time went on to earn more than their parents did. We looked over time, though, and looked at what fraction of kids went on to earn more than their parents for kids born in the 70s and the 80s and so on. You just see a really dramatic fading of the American dream, such that for kids who are entering the labor market today, it's basically a 50-50 shot now as to whether you're going to do better than your parents. So it's a fact that for many Americans at present, it's no longer the case that this is a place where you're going to be moving up relative to your parents. And I think that's what drives a lot of the frustration that people around America are expressing. So the the critique you hear of this, um, and I'll, I'll associate this one, say, with Scott Winship, who's a sort of conservative scholar who sort of makes the argument consistently that mobility has not gone down, that opportunity is still alive, that incomes have gone up more than more than we think. He sort of makes two arguments in response. One, one is that because of delayed marriage and rising divorce and delayed childbearing and reduced fertility of smaller families now, and because you have smaller families, a given amount of income needs to um, be spread over fewer people. And that when you take that into account, well, actually, most people are better off than their parents were at the same age. What do you think of that argument? Well, so we assessed that argument in this paper that we published in Science a couple of years ago that uh, first reported these results. And we have a version of the analysis where we adjust for household size and look at how the results change. And it's true that because households are smaller today, real incomes per capita in some sense are, are higher. But to me, that doesn't fundamentally change the trend. So rather than going from 90% to 50%, it goes from 90% to 60%. The point here is not literally whether the number is 50% or not. It's whether it's declined relative to the past. And I've spoken with Scott about this, and I, I don't think there's any disagreement here. I don't think anyone thinks there hasn't been a quite substantial decline. There's some debate about the magnitude of the decline. But in my view, that's not the core issue here. The, the point is there's been a big change, and we should try to understand what the drivers of mobility are. I would just say, um, I think you're slightly nicer this argument than I would be. I, I think it's weird to say that you should adjust for smaller family size, given that a lot of people would like to have bigger families, but don't feel they have the incomes to do so. Um, if you think of having a family as to some degree, uh, I don't want to say having a family is an economic good. I just had a child. I did not think of that as a like a like something I did for for my economic utility. Uh -huh. But if I was not able to have a family because I didn't feel I had the money to support one, well, you might then look at me and say, well, look, he's got more money because he didn't have a family, but that would have been a terrible um, right. hit to my life and to, to, to the kind of life I want to live. And um, so I, I don't know, that, that argument always strikes me as very strange. Yeah, that's exactly, I mean, and I like this, that's why our baseline notion, that what we start with as the default is just household income. I just think that's a sensible way to, the way people think about how well they're doing, you know, rather than dividing it by the number of people in the household and so forth. So I, I totally agree with you, but I, I say, notwithstanding that, if somebody has a different view on that question, even then you'd still come to the conclusion that there's been a big fading of the American dream. And what about the argument that within these results, there's not of attention being paid to employer non-financial, non-monetary compensation like healthcare benefits and pension benefits um, that, you know, 
price indexes are off, that we're not accounting transfers correctly, that, that there's a bunch of um, basically transfers in the system and subsidies in the system, either from government or employers, that are big enough now to really change the data, but that um, but but are not being counted. I mean, liberals will talk about this on the poverty side, that the poverty rate doesn't tell a good, the correct story because in not taking into account any transfers, um, you can't say that the transfers aren't helping, you're just not looking at them. Yeah. So, but I don't think liberals like this idea so much when you're talking about overall trajectory of household income and, and, and American life chances. Yeah, so again, first I would give you know a similar answer. We have a version where we add in transfers, we account, we use different price indices. Again, broadly, I don't think the qualitative patterns change. But I think you can also take a different approach and ask, what are you trying to measure? What's the right way to think about the American dream? Is it that you are now doing better than your parents because you're getting more transfers from the government? Or is it that you actually have the opportunity to earn more than your parents did? And I actually think it's not totally clear. It's not just about your net income. I think for many people, the American dream is about having the opportunities to have the type of job that yields a certain level of earnings. It's the the dignity associated with that. It's the freedom and opportunities uh, associated with that. So while we focus on incomes as a simple thing we can measure systematically, I think we should recognize that the idea of the American dream is actually much broader than that. So that, that then gets us back, I think, to the question of places to do the American dream well. And we talked a bit ago about policy. Um, what are the non-policy factors that you have found in your research are most predictive of whether or not a place is going to have high opportunity or not? Yeah. So first, you know, I'm not sure I would divide things neatly into policy and non-policy factors because I think a lot of things that might appear to be non-policy factors are indirectly shaped through policies. So let me just list what I see as the strongest predictive factors. And I should note, this is not something where we have the definitive answer yet. We continue to work on this. But let's just talk about, you know, what are the characteristics of the places that have the highest levels of opportunity? So they tend to have certain systematic features. As we talked about, they tend to have less concentrated poverty. They tend to be more mixed income integrated areas. They tend to be places with more two-parent families. So this is actually one of the strongest patterns in the data. Places that have more stable family structures, lower divorce rates, higher marriage rates, they tend to have higher levels of upward mobility. Now, in understanding what's going on here, initially the explanation that comes to people's minds is, sure, it's probably better for a kid to be raised in a two-parent family than a one-parent family, all else equal, and that's why you're seeing that correlation. So that is actually not what's driving this pattern. What we find is even if we look at a set of kids who are growing up in two-parent families themselves, if they live in an area with more single parents, they are less likely to climb the income ladder. So what that shows you is it's not a direct effect of whether your own parents are married or not. That actually is not all that predictive of your outcomes. What it's, it's pointing to some community-level factor that's being picked up by these measures of family stability. What exactly that factor is, I don't know. I'm, I'm not confident enough to say we should be trying to directly change family structure or rates of marriage. It could be that this is correlated with some other factor that that's having an influence here. But whatever it is, this is an incredibly strong pattern in the data that I think we should try to understand. A third factor that's related to that is the idea of social capital. So social capital, it's, uh, you know, I think the simplest way to think about it is the old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. So will someone else help you out even if you're not doing well? Salt Lake City with the Mormon Church is thought to be a place with a lot of social capital. Correspondingly, Salt Lake City has very high rates of upward mobility. 
And so places that look like that in terms of connectedness, you know, will somebody else help you out even if you're not, you've fallen on hard times, those kinds of places tend to have high levels of upward mobility. Again, is that a policy factor or not? I mean, obviously, we don't have policies that directly try to increase social capital, but it's possible that the way we set up our cities or the way we structure our schools and so forth ends up having indirect effects on social capital. So I want to draw out something you said in that discussion of marriage rates. So something that your research seems to me to show again and again is that it is very important whether or not you are in a culture of X. And that culture might be two-parent families. That culture might be inventors. That culture might be what kinds of things the people around you invent. You have interesting research showing that if you grow up in an area with more inventors, you're more likely to be an inventor. But depending on the kinds of inventors, you're more likely to invent in that area, be they medical devices in one space or technology in, in another location. I think we're very used to thinking about there being almost two levels of context that really matter here. What's happening in your family? Like, is your dad or mom an inventor? Is, are your parents married? And then what's happening in government policy? And it seems to me that what you show is that this mediating space of your direct community is incredibly, incredibly important and prevailing norms in it are incredibly important, totally separate from what's happening in your household specifically. That's exactly right. That's very well put. I mean, I, I one of the strongest patterns I think that emerges in all of these studies is that exposure matters as a child, what you're exposed to, what you're around in terms of career pathways, in terms of getting involved in crime, in terms of when you get married, who you get married to, what types of occupations you pursue. In every one of these dimensions, we see that you tend to follow what was going on around you when you grew up in a very precise way. So just to flesh out that inventor's example further, which I think is illustrative, we find that not only is the field in which you innovate sensitive, highly related to where you grew up, but that's actually that actually occurs in a gender-specific manner. So if women grow up in an area where there are more female inventors in a particular field, they are more likely to become inventors themselves in that field. But if there were more male inventors, in that area, it has no impact at all. So these patterns are, are very specific. And exactly as you said, they reflect the fact that children, I think, absorb what's in their family, what's in their surroundings, all of which might ultimately shaped, be shaped by government policy. But that really seems like the ultimate critical thing, I think, that is leading to different trajectories in different places. That paper and, and some of the others you've done have really led me to, to upwardly adjust my view of how important representation is. Um, I was always somebody who thought it was pretty important, so it hasn't been like a huge shock to my worldview. But nevertheless, there is this debate that you will hear about, well, you know, does it really matter that you're seeing people who look like you on television or around you or in that job? Or isn't it ridiculous that at this point we're trying to think about X demographic group with Y job pattern in, in Z place? And it, it really seemed to me that some of the work you've done shows that representation is incredibly, incredibly important. And people who dismiss the importance it has in shaping children's life outcomes are, are really missing the boat. That not everything is about material benefits. Not everything is about um, dir direct chances. A lot of it is about just what horizons of possibility are open in the minds of someone for themselves, wholly separate from what they're being given direct access to. Yeah, that's it. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think people's aspirations are shaped by what they see others around them, and in particular, others around them who they can relate to doing. So if the only pathway you've seen to success out of your particular neighborhood is 
somebody becoming a star basketball player, then maybe that's what you try to do. But obviously, the odds of that are extremely low as a, as a pathway to, to, to lifetime success. And so I think that really changes kids' uh, perceptions. Now, one piece I might push back on or at least say you know, we don't know for sure yet is whether it's adequate to see people on TV or in the media to really shape people's yeah, aspirations. Yeah, I don't mean to say, I don't mean yeah. to say that it is. Yeah, and it, it, it could well be that that's very important. You know, I think we just don't know. But my, my sense is the deeper interactions where you're really interacting with somebody in your community and that influences uh, what you choose to do, that might be where the action really is. That's obviously also much harder to change than having kind of a campaign with different types of folks. I worry now that it's harder to change, and I know this gets a little speculative now, but that it's becoming weaker in society altogether that we are becoming more geographically concentrated in a lot of ways, um, both in terms of income and wealth, but also in terms of how specialized different places are, um, that we are, uh, rates of social capital are going down, people live much more of their lives online, they live much more of their lives with sort of far-flung relationships with family and friends, and that all that together, you know, maybe kind of works if you're an adult once you're in it, but that it's actually not the way kids absorb or it's not uh, – th that it will have bad effects in terms of concentrating too much of the opportunity in the representation such that we're sitting here debating, you know, well, is it good enough to see these kinds of things on television? Partly because so many areas have become weaker in terms of the breadth of what they're able to offer in what a child sees growing up. Yeah. And I, that you know brings us back to I think what I'm most excited about with the creating moves to opportunity study that you know in an era of growing segregation we don't need to accept that as sort of an inevitable fact in a society with rising inequality and changes in technology that we are going to separate like that and that's what people's preferences are. I think it's very important to be deliberate in thinking about how we fight that tendency because I think that's at the root of creating opportunities that persist. And, you know, we've been focused on neighborhoods as the place where that integration takes place, but it's in every institution in society, right? So think about the religious institutions that people participate in, how integrated are they, or the colleges you attend. Colleges in America are incredibly segregated. In fact, they're just as segregated as neighborhoods in America, contrary to many people's perceptions that college is a place where you meet people from many different backgrounds. It's actually, you're just as likely to run into a lower income or higher income person in college as you are in your own neighborhood because certain colleges in America cater to very high income families and other colleges cater to kids from much lower income families. And so I think thinking in each of these institutions, how do we foster income integration as an active goal is extremely important. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to me, if I were a policymaker, one of the, the big takeaways that I would have from your work is that two of my overriding goals should be promoting integration of different kinds, both economic and racial, but 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 other dimensions too, um, and social capital construction. I'm curious if you would add anything to that sentence. Are there are there other macro takeaways that you think policymakers should should have from from what you found? Yeah, I think the other takeaways I would have would focus on specific policy levers that are in, in sort of the traditional domains of, say, education. So I think trying to improve the quality of elementary education by retaining and recruiting the most effective teachers has been shown to have extremely large long-term effects. I think likewise in the higher education system, increasing access to institutions that provide pathways to upward mobility 
where, for instance, we have extremely few low-income students at institutions like Harvard and Stanford, which are sort of gateways to, to upward mobility, especially to, to elite positions in the country. Uh, I think that's an extremely important goal. And there's a room for policy to do that, not just through financial aid, which is what we traditionally think about, but think about different types of uh, performance-based funding. So rather than anchoring colleges, uh, uh, the amount of funding they get uh, to other metrics, you could imagine trying to reward colleges that are particularly focused on promoting mobility. So take as a simple measure of mobility, how many kids come from low-income families at your college and end up moving into the middle class or moving into the top of the income distribution. If you have very high rates of mobility, we could imagine in, you know, providing more support for those types of colleges. I think that kind of thing would move things in the right direction. You had mentioned a moment ago the, the effect of teachers. Something that seems to me to be true out of your work is that good teachers and even just just teachers have a huge, huge um, economic long-term effect um, on society. Um, you, I think you. I, I'm not going to get this right from memory, so so you'll have to you'll have to do it for me. But I think you did a study some number of years ago about um, having a teacher early in your life and a really good one. Something like eighty thousand uh, dollars of lifetime earning increase over having an average one. Yes, that's about right. And. Uh... Yeah, quite substantial increases in lifetime earnings on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending and, upon- And that's per student. Per, per student, per student. Which is remarkable. And so it seems to me that, again, if I were building society based off of Raj Chetty recommendations or, or findings, I would say, you know what, the base pay for teachers should just be $100,000. I mean, what they are, what what is provided if teachers are really great is tremendous. And as such, it should just be a very highly remunerated, very high status profession. I mean, the idea that the base pay of management consultants is super high, but the base pay of teachers is relatively modest seems a little crazy to me. I, I agree with that. But I would also say that we should have a culture of trying to recruit and retain the, the top talent right, in teaching as we do in these other highly paid professions. I think at present in our teaching workforce, we don't necessarily have the evaluation systems and the recruitment systems where if a principal identifies a star teacher, uh, and really wants to keep that teacher, but that teacher says, oh, you know, I would make an extra $20,000 if I switched to this other profession or moved to a private school. Principals essentially have no capacity in the current system to say, no, I'm going to give you a bonus and target my resources to really keep you, unlike in essentially any other sector of the American capitalistic economy. And I think providing that kind of flexibility could be extremely valuable. All right. This is a good time to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I want to talk a bit about uh, some recent work you guys did on life expectancy. You found that the richest American men live 15 years longer than the poorest men. The richest American women live 10 years longer than the poorest women. Um, my read, and I think this is in your study as well, of this research is that in recent years, we've continued to see a huge inequality in gains in life expectancy too. So the richest are, are living longer at a accelerating rate uh, c compared to the poor. That's a really profound kind of inequality. It's one thing to say we have economic inequality. It's another thing to say that that we have life expectancy inequality uh, on the order of 15, 20% of people's um, lifetimes. I I'd like to just hear a little bit, a bit more about your findings in there and, and, and what you think are the probable contributors. Yeah. So I think there are stunningly large differences in life expectancy in the U.S. Another benchmark I like to use is the CDC estimates that if we were to eliminate cancer as a cause of death, we would increase average life expectancy in America by th about three years. 
So think about the 15-year gap in that perspective, right? It's like bigger than the, the gap from one group having cancer and the other not. It's actually five times as large as that. So these are vast, vast differences in life expectancy. And in the same way that we devote, as we should, an enormous amount of resources to trying to understand and identify the cure for cancers, basically, I think we should likewise be thinking about this 15-year loss of life for big groups of our population as something we really should be trying to address as a public health issue systematically. And so how do we go about doing that? In my mind, I break it into two classes of factors. One are the set of factors that are related to economic inequality to begin with, the types of things we've been talking about, the places that have lower rates of upward mobility, which are more segregated, they have weaker schools, they have less social capital, and so forth. But then there's a second type of what you might think of as pure health inequality, even conditional on economic inequality, where we find that if you take a person at a given level of income, say earning twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a year, which would put them around the 25th percentile of the income distribution, if you look at that same person living, say, in New York City versus Detroit, you see very different life expectancy even among people of the same income level. In particular, the person in New York lives about three or four years longer than the person in Detroit with comparable income. And so that second kind of inequality, health at a given level of income, you can ask what's driving that variation across places, uh, across different parts of America. And what you find there is that it really seems to be all about health behaviors not about healthcare access, which is what I think many people, especially on the left, would think of that, you know, this is about some people having access to health insurance and uh, better healthcare. That actually doesn't correlate that much with these differences. What does correlate is the fraction of people who smoke, rates of obesity, uh, and rates of exercise and so forth. If you look at maps of smoking rates in America for low-income individuals, they look almost identical to these uh, differences in, in life expectancy for low-income Americans. And so I think we need to think about how we, it again comes back to issues of changing social norms and changing behavior. How do we change health behaviors in a way that would narrow some of these gaps, either through preventive care or through education? I think that's an important area to focus on. Yeah, I'm somebody who spends a lot of time arguing with people about the best way to design health insurance systems. I'm talking to people about, you know, Medicare for all versus Medicare for more. And, you know, do you want a private option or a public option or a private option inside a public option? And all of these sort of architected, somewhat theoretical ideas about how can you spend a lot of money insuring people. And in the back of my consciousness, I worry that the true answer to the whole question is instead of spending money on health insurance, which I think you should do to be very clear, you would have a bigger effect simply raising money by tripling cigarette taxes everywhere in the country. Yeah. And I mean, I think it depends upon what your goals are, right? So I think providing health insurance obviously can have tremendous value, even if it's not directly changing overall life expectancy or health outcomes all that much. It tremendously reduces financial risk and financial burden. So when somebody faces a big health shock, it's one thing if they have to pay $20,000 out of pocket. It's a completely different situation if they if they're insured, independent of what health outcomes might then ensue. But separate from that, I do think from a health perspective, like with inequality in income, we need to have that long-term view that health builds up over time. And if you don't get people to change their behaviors, and often, you know, going back to childhood years, there's good evidence that what you do as a kid and what you were around as a kid 
influences your diet, your exercise patterns, and so forth for years. I think those are the things in terms of health inequality that will have a longer payoff in the long run. So that's a super interesting point. I want to draw it out for a second. One way you could interpret the conversation we're having is, well, Raj Chetty is saying that health behaviors are the driver here. And so in these poor neighborhoods that have these lower life expectancies, there's more obesity, there's more smoking, there's maybe less exercise, so on and so forth. Now, maybe some of that is structural, um, but a lot of that is individual choice. And so what can you do? Like, what a shame. But another way of saying it, which you just pointed out, is if you're looking at this as something that is partially cultural and is something that is is another one of these cultures of X, right? You, you grow up in an era where people act in one way versus another way. Um, I grew up in Southern California, and I think that is very reflected in my attitudes towards health and weird diets and exercise and so forth today. Um, then things like economic integration policies really matter because what children are going to absorb is going to be very determinative, not the only thing, but 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 relatively determinative later in life. And so to the extent you're creating more and more pockets or permitting more and more pockets of just sort of unbroken poverty, you are setting them up for failure. And to the extent you're creating policies that allow for a lot more integration, so there's more cultural mixing, you can have a pretty big effect on this. It won't happen next year, but in the long run. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think that speaks more broadly to something I've always felt that this debate about culture and behavior, uh, which is quite fraught, is, is somewhat misplaced. My view is that behavior and individual choice matters a great deal, but that choice takes place in a framework that we create, the set of norms that prevail in a given area, which in turn are a function of the types of institutions and policies that we have. And so when people talk about culture, you know, different cultures emerging in different subgroups or different areas, sometimes that's interpreted as, oh, that means that it's totally outside the domain of, uh, you know, what we can do or what government can do. But I think that's that's not right at all because th those cultures are very much shaped by the policies that we set up. A good example of that is uh, this nice book that Richard Rothstein has on color lines and how government policies basically led to the segregation that we're seeing particularly by race in America uh, today. And that, I think, is an illustration of how through government policy, we've created certain structures that lead to a certain set of cultures and norms developing that in turn affect behavior. So I think that's the productive way to look at these issues. So if you, if you were designing policy here, what are the two or three things you would do to close the life expectancy gap? So I think the first set of things I would do come back to what we've talked about before and just in terms of trying to reduce economic inequality and, and create uh, greater social mobility. It, it comes back to issues of schools and integration. I mean, obviously, those are not the they don't directly touch health. But I think in the long run, those are factors that, that would play in quite a bit. I think second, trying to directly change health behaviors. So this is outside the scope of work I've done myself, but to the extent we have public health campaigns or efforts to reduce smoking, be it through cigarettes or other types of policies uh, to reduce uh, you know, adverse health behaviors of various forms, I think that can be incredibly effective. I think the fact that we effectively subsidize many unhealthy foods in the United States uh, high fructose, corn syrup, et cetera. Uh, you know, there's no reason to be making those products cheaper than they naturally would be. Uh, I'm not saying one necessarily has to tax them, but at a minimum, I don't see why one would want to, uh, from a health and economic policy standpoint, be creating subsidies for unhealthier foods. 
Uh, there have been a couple great profiles of you written recently. Um, one of them was in Vox by my colleague Dylan Matthews, focusing on the the way you're teaching a, a major course at Harvard, um, and people should read it. And there's another one in the Atlantic. And there was something in the Atlantic that caught my eye about how a lot of the maps you've created look a lot like maps of slavery. That, that they actually put up one side by side with a map yeah. Abraham Lincoln uh, used of of the places that had the highest concentration of of slaves, and then later I was looking through more of your papers to prepare for this interview, and I was noticing those maps again, and then in my head just couldn't stop seeing the legacy of slavery and 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 racism on those maps. I'm curious uh, what that has made you reflect on in terms of our historical legacies around race and the role they play in a lot of the questions you're studying. Yeah. So that's a clear fact in the data. Places that uh, had slave plantations essentially have much lower levels of upward mobility today. And there are a few different things going on that drive this. And I think they tell us how we should be thinking about these issues. So first, it's a fact that in the United States today, there are extremely large racial disparities in upward mobility. And in particular, there are large racial disparities between black and white men as opposed to black and white women, where we see more similar rates of mobility. So if you look at a black man born to a low-income family, he has much, much lower odds of climbing the income ladder than a white man born to a family of comparable income. Conversely, if you look at a black man born to a high-income family, he has a much higher chance of falling down the income ladder in the next generation relative to white men. So the way I like to think about this visually is if you think about the American dream as climbing a ladder for white Americans, it's more like being on a treadmill for black Americans. Even after you climb up in one generation and you think you've escaped poverty and you're living in an affluent neighborhood, going to a good school and so forth, unfortunately, and I really think this is a, a terrible uh, feature of American society and the economy at, at, uh, at present, uh, unfortunately, you have a great chance of falling down in the next generation even after having made the climb. And it's that treadmill feature that I think leads to the persistence of racial disparities in the United States generation after generation. We really have to fix that in order to have an impact, a sustained impact on racial disparities in the U.S. To draw out something else you just said, though, because I, I thought this was one of your most striking findings, is the huge difference there between um, intergenerational opportunity for for Black men and Black women, particularly once it is uh, once you control for other things and then once it is achieved. Given the prevalence, uh, and I think quite damaging prevalence, of explanations for the racial wealth gap that attend to culture or genetics. The fact that you see such different outcomes for men and women, given that we know there are very, very different stereotypes and societal treatments that attend to black men and black women, it really seems to suggest that it is uh, how society is seeing people, not what is in those people that is mattering. I completely agree with that. And I think the gender difference makes that completely clear. If you look at any informed discussion that that attempted to give uh, you know genetic sort of explanations, there's no reason you would see gender differences there. In fact, if you look at what earlier arguments of that type were based on, looking at test score differences, you actually see no differences in terms of test score outcomes between black and white women. Yet you see tremendously different outcomes in the labor market where black women have college attendance rates comparable to white women and higher than white men, actually, uh, controlling for their parent income, whereas black men, as we know, have incredibly low employment rates, particularly if they grew up in low-income families, have very high incarceration rates and so forth. And I think this reflects environmental factors 
um, that, uh, you know, that are quite prevalent across the United States. The other thing about those maps is there's a persistent myth in America to me that I call the zero hour myth, which is that there's in a lot of different parts of our society, some moment where we hit a zero hour where it's like, okay, it was unequal and discriminatory until now, but now we've passed this one law or done this one thing or had this one court decision and from here on out, equality. And so anything that is redressing the past or trying to provide a ladder up from, from historical injustice is actually a kind of present discrimination because now things are equal. So to make them unequal in whatever um, direction would be a problem, as Chief Justice John Roberts said, the way to stop discriminating on race is to stop discriminating on race, which he wrote while striking down the voting part of the Voting Rights Act. And the, these maps you show always strike me uh, and, and their connection to those slavery maps to be a reminder of how powerful our historical legacy is even when we're not always aware that that is what's operating around us. I mean, it's so interesting to me that a map of slavery and a map of smoking will look actually very similar. Yeah. Um, or a map of slavery and a map of the, the carceral state. And those things are, they, they are reminders that the way our past injustices and discriminations and conflicts and atrocities, they, uh, they, they affect things that we would not necessarily connect to them today. That's right, Ezra. And I mean, an example of how they affect things in ways that are non-obvious is actually when you look at who has very low rates of upward mobility in the South in areas with a uh, high rate of slavery in the past, it's not black Americans, actually. It's actually white Americans who live in those areas who have the lowest rates of upward mobility. So you might have thought, you know, why does the South have lower rates of upward mobility? That's driven by differences in the black population living in the South versus the rest of the country. That's actually incorrect. The, if you look at a map among white Americans, the lowest rates of upward mobility for whites are in highly segregated areas, in areas where in the past there was a history of slavery and racial discrimination and so forth. And so I think what that shows us is that the legacy of some of these institutions from the past where you had more segregated cities by race, but when you have more segregation by race, you also tend to have more segregation by income, where you don't have the same level of public transit, you don't have the same level of connection, integration in cities. That's going to tend to push lower income folks away from higher income folks as well, well even regardless of race. And so what that shows is some of these things play out in ways that are non-obvious and end up having pernicious effects uh, throughout society, not just for for one subgroup. To be fair, I want to say that wasn't what I had realized was happening in those maps. But something you just made me think about is I was listening to a discussion with Nicole Hannah-Jones recently, and she makes a point that because of the way Brown v. Board was enforced, um, it's actually the South that has the least segregated school districts in America. Hmm. And so if it is in fact the case that you're finding particularly low mobility in the old Confederacy belt, but that low mobility is actually concentrated not among blacks, but among whites, I wonder if some if one reason that uh, African-Americans are doing better than one might expect is because you actually have more integration. And there was, at least for some period of time, a lot more attention on trying to right some of the historical wrongs. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also true while there's more integration in those schools, Traditionally in the South, you've had less funding for public schools than in the rest of the, the country. And there's in general less, you know, kind of public investment. Um, and I think that could be part of why you see lower rates of upward mobility uh, for whites in, in the South in particular. 
So t- tell me more about that data, though, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So you do not see a difference in African-American mobility in those areas. Yeah. So what you see, imagine that you're looking at two separate maps, a map of upward mobility for African-Americans based on where they grew up and a map for white Americans. And if you look at uh, the first map for, for black Americans, you would actually find slightly higher rates of upward mobility in much of the deep south, if you look at places like Louisiana, for example, than then in, uh, in a place like Cleveland or Detroit. Uh, for instance, or many other parts of the country. Now, if you look at a map for whites, you would see a very stark pattern of much lower rates of uh, upward mobility throughout the South than you see in the rest of the country. Now, I should add one important caveat here to all of this, which is when you look at black versus white men, uniformly across the country, you see lower rates of upward mobility for black men relative to white men. So I'm not saying that in the South, black men have higher rates of upward mobility than white Americans do in the South or elsewhere. There's a big racial difference throughout America. However, when we ask, if you're a black man, where are your chances of climbing the income ladder the highest? It's actually often in the South and not elsewhere in the country. Let me ask you about another kind of mobility, which is you've talked a lot about your own personal story where your family was able to, to immigrate here um, when you were young, and that's the reason you're, you've had the particular life you've had. Borders are one way we keep mobility extremely artificially constrained. And I'm curious, looking given how much work you've done looking at different neighborhoods inside one country and then knowing at least some about how different uh, chances are between countries, how you think about the opportunities that exist in tightening or loosening um, border border control and immigration laws. Yeah. I mean, so this is, think of this as moving to opportunity on an international scale rather than within the United States or integration on international scales. One way to look at it in my own personal experience has been that that played a profound effect in, in my own life. And when you look at the data, you see that immigrants who come to the United States have the highest levels of upward mobility, much higher levels of upward mobility than children born within the United States. And I think one way to think about what's going on there is many immigrant parents come to the United States in search of opportunity. They themselves may not be able to climb the, the income ladder that much in their own generation, but their kids often end up doing extremely well even if the parents are are quite low income. So from a global welfare perspective, I think giving more people access to those types of opportunities can be extremely valuable. It certainly helps those people. And the best evidence that we have on the impacts of immigration on natives from scholars like David Card and others is that those effects aren't all that significant. In some studies, they actually look somewhat positive. If you have more immigrants, you can see high-skilled immigrants in particular can increase productivity, lead to more innovation, and so forth. Um, And so I think from a social welfare point of view, taking a global view, there's certainly something to be said for uh, having high rates of of immigration, allowing people to flow across borders. Now, from the perspective perspective of a particular nation, you can see why people, if they have the perception that you're sort of sharing a fixed pie with others, uh, that they don't want other people to come into the United States, I think that is a trickier issue. As I said earlier, I don't think there's strong evidence that when you have more immigrants, that's actually detrimental for Americans themselves, but that's distinct from the, the benefits that immigrants themselves would get. 
And, and then this is one more question on the the international scene, which is, I saw uh, research a number of years ago arguing that at this point, mobility is higher in much of Western Europe and Canada than it is in America, our claims of being the land of opportunity notwithstanding. I know this is not primarily where your research is focused, but I'm curious if you have a, a sort of global take on how we compare with other peer nations in terms of mobility. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think that's basically right. At present, the US is not, if you were an immigrant choosing where to go and have the best chances of climbing the income ladder, statistically, you'd have a better shot of achieving the American dream, so to speak, if you're growing up in Canada than the United States or in many Scandinavian countries than the United States. That's just a fact that if you're in a lower middle income family, you're more likely to climb the income ladder in those countries. Now, a more nuanced take on that, which I think is pretty interesting, is people have recently been replicating some of the work that we've been doing in the US looking within America, looking within Canada, looking within Sweden, etc. And one of the patterns you find is that the US has a lot more variation across places than other countries do. So in Sweden, it matters much less which specific neighborhood you grow up in. In the US, it matters a ton. So there are parts of the US which have even higher rates of upward mobility than Sweden on average. And there are parts of the US that look much, much worse than any country for which we currently have data. So think of the US as basically this incredibly varied mix where there's some places that are truly lands of opportunity, even in the present day. There are other places that unfortunately are lands of persistent poverty. Other countries are more uniform is the sense we have, perhaps because they have more centralized institutions, less variation across places. I think it's probably a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you, you think people should read? Yeah. So I uh, recent, among recent books, I really like Scarcity by uh, Sandil Molinathan and Elder Shafir. which yeah, is a, He was just on the show, Sandil, a couple weeks ago. Okay, excellent. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a book that captures the challenges that lower income families face, uh, you know, psychologically, just in terms of the amount of bandwidth they have to deal with challenges that many others might take as uh, take for granted, from the housing search issues we talked about, to filling out applications, to going to school. I think when you've got so many other things that are uh, going on in your life, from challenges finding childcare, to mental health issues, to crime in your neighborhood, et cetera, I think it just uh, completely changes the way people make decisions and changes the types of institutions we ought to think about to, to support people. So that's one book. Another book that influenced me and I think paints a picture of some, some of the important issues that people face is uh, Evicted by Matt Desmond, the, the well-known sociologist, uh, talking about how housing instability plays out for, for many American families. And I think it's a manifestation, again, of of the challenges that that many people face, and written beautifully, and and bringing people into 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 these lives, and then I'll throw out a third one that I've been uh, reading recently, actually, with uh, my daughter. I also have a, a young daughter, uh, like um, a young child like you, Ezra, and uh, we've been reading a book together recently, a Winnie the Pooh book called Heffalump, and that's a story about uh, that actually touches on many of these issues as I think about it. It's a, a story about. Uh, two groups of Disney characters, Winnie the Pooh and friends, and then these heffalumps, and they think of each other as these very scary, distinct groups living in different sides of a fence. But when they actually meet each other, they realize that they're all perfectly harmless and actually quite fun to, to be with. And that integration completely changes uh, what they think about each other, and everybody's really happy. My daughter loves the book, and I do too. Raj Shetty, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. My pleasure. 
Thank you to Professor Chetty for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Gill for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com for feedback, guest ideas, whatever it might be. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 